This episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones will be particularly upsetting for many of you to hear. The details will not be as graphic as they have been in the past, such as in the Spade Cooley episode. But there are multiple instances of child abuse, child molestation, and sexual assault in this episode. This was not what I expected to find when I chose today's subject. But now that I've learned about it, I won't pretend that it's not there. As always, there is a full transcript of this episode at cocaineandrhinestones.com if you'd like to preview it before listening. Whose bed have your boots been under? You do not have to be born in a certain state to become a country music star. Hank Snow, Anne Murray, and Shania Twain are all Canadian. If you're not aware, Shania Twain is the single best-selling female artist in country music history. Being poor isn't required to have artistic integrity in country music. If it was, then you'd never have heard the name Graham Parsons in relation to the genre. And if you have no love for what Graham Parsons did with country music, then how do you feel about the songwriting of Towns Van Zandt? His family was so rich they have a county in Texas named after them. Affluence is not a deal breaker. You do not have to be white. Ask Freddie Fender, Neil McCoy, Charlie Pride, Johnny Rodriguez, or any other non-Anglo-Saxon country superstar. I would go so far as to say there are no special circumstances of birth required to understand or create country music. All you have to do is mean it. Read Charlie Pride's autobiography. The racism you expect is there, but according to Charlie, nearly none of it was the knee-jerk racism of white people not wanting a black person to make country music. It was almost entirely a secondary form of prejudice, and it came from black people as well as white people. Everyone saw Charlie Pride and made a snap judgment that he must be a failed R&B or soul singer, putting on an act to try and make it in country music. That's obviously not what Charlie was doing, but that sort of thing did, and still does, happen. Black singers and musicians were always telling Charlie he could drop the act when there weren't any white people around. Only, Charlie wasn't acting. Suspicious bands and country musicians would interrogate Charlie before and after concerts to see if he was for real. They could see he wasn't white, so that wasn't the test he needed to pass. They weren't asking him where he was from. They weren't asking if he grew up poor. They wanted to know about his favorite singers and his favorite songs. What he liked, why he liked it, all the stuff music fans geek out over. Once they were satisfied it wasn't a trick or an act, Charlie was for real about this music. He was instantly accepted. There's a Hank Williams quote that fits here. Quote, you ask what makes our kind of music successful, I'll tell you. It can be explained in just one word, sincerity. End quote. 
Country music is a genre that deals with serious pain and sorrow, sometimes with gallows humor, but often looking it square in the face. There's a certain degree of trust that has to be there for that to work. You don't have to play 200 shows a year for 10 years in Texas to be a great singer. You don't have to work in a coal mine to know struggle. You don't have to be poor to get your heart broken. But do you mean it? Because that's the only test you have to pass. It's an easy one to pass. All you have to do is be sincere. You can use a stage name, start wearing different clothes, have a toupee, get plastic surgery, create an entire alter ego for yourself. But you'd better mean it. And shouldn't it just be about the music? Of course it should be about the music. It is about the music. It's about keeping it honest. That's why Charlie Pride's first records were shipped without the usual promo photo. That picture would have made it about the black man singing country songs instead of being about the country songs sung by the black man. I watched that car pull right up into my driveway. Saw a shadow slip away from my house. So I hurried straight and looked in her And I found out that it was my loving spouse. Oh, the snakes crawl at night. That's what they say. When the sun goes down, then the snakes will play. His team made the music more important by not shipping it with the backstory. Even though the backstory was amazing, it would have been a distraction from the honesty of the music. Because if we think we're being sold a story or a gimmick or a lie, if that suspicion builds before an artist gains momentum, the music may never have a chance to get heard. I didn't know any of this when I was a child in the 80s, when I first heard Wynonna sing with her mother in The Judds. Some call it country with a little bit of rhythm and blues. And when the boys start rocking, there's a beat that you just can't lose. Where it's gonna take us, nobody knows. It sure feels good to the body and soul. I love the slide of the steel guitar. I love the moan, moan, moan of the no blues heart. I didn't know their label found a mother-daughter act with a seemingly legit backstory and a country music sound that was smooth enough to sell to pop audiences, while still being traditional enough to appeal to all these whining fans who say Nashville isn't making real country anymore. I didn't know any of that. I just thought the Judds were country music and I thought they were good. I still think both of those things. I remember the Judds breaking up and Wynonna coming out with an album of her own. There's one single in particular that I remember very well. I thought that was Country 2, and I guess I still do, but listening to it now, I honestly could not tell you why. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestone, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lies of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Coe. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, 
here's the truth about this one. If we're going to try to understand Winona Judd, we have to try to understand her past, her family, and specifically her mother. Since Naomi Judd, Winona Judd, and her sister Ashley have all written at least one autobiography each, you'd think this would be easy. Naomi Judd's real name is Diana, but this is all going to be confusing enough anyway, so I'll keep calling her Naomi. Born in Ashland, Kentucky in 1946, her daddy owned a gas station. They weren't rich, and her father didn't like to spend his money, but they certainly weren't poor. Decades later, Naomi would tell her daughters that she had a happy childhood. Her bedroom was kept clean. She got good grades. She saved her earnings from babysitting jobs to pay for her own tap dancing lessons. She was popular at school. At 14, she began dating a 16-year-old boy named Michael Ciminella. Michael was handsome, and his family was well off. He had his own car to drive himself to and from the military academy he attended in Virginia. That meant he could take Naomi on dates to the movies or to the country club his family belonged to. Naomi liked that. For Michael's part, well, just from looking at pictures, Naomi Judd had to be the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen in person. He proposed marriage on their first date. She, of course, said no. After graduation, Michael went to college for a year, socialized instead of studying, flunked out, and came home. In Lexington, Kentucky, a couple of hours away from Ashland, Michael found less distraction and maintained a 4.0 GPA. He and Naomi continued to date. When she became pregnant in 1963, at the age of 17, Michael again asked Naomi to marry him. This time, she said yes. When her parents learned she was pregnant, they freaked out. Naomi's mother sent her to live with Michael's family. Christina Ciminella was born in 1964. To keep it simple, I'll be calling her Winona. After a year or two with the Ciminellas, Naomi and Baby Y were able to move with Michael into a small apartment near his school. After graduating college, Michael got a job that moved the family to California, where a second child, Ashley, was born. It's in California that Naomi, for whatever reason, seems to begin hating Michael. From here on out, any house with the two of them living in it is the polar opposite of a happy home. Little Winona finds escape in visits to her Kentucky grandparents, the Chimanellas. She'll fly back and be made to feel like the center of their universe. Shopping for new clothes, endless treats and snacks, days in the country club swimming pool. Much better than life at home, where Naomi goes full tilt California. Hippie ideals, anti-war protest, checking in and out of religions from theosophy all the way back to baptism. She chops off all her hair into a pixie cut, similar to Mia Farrow's in Rosemary's Baby. In one of their last family photos taken before the inevitable divorce, Naomi looks like she should be a movie star. According to Winona, Naomi often talks of what their lives will be like after they make it, fantasizing aloud of becoming famous and rich. When little Ashley begins walking and talking, Michael nicknames her Ashley Famous. In spring of 1970, Naomi signs a lease on a two-story house off the Sunset Strip forcing her family out of the valley and into Hollywood. 
This fixes nothing between her and Michael. They argue more than ever. She starts smoking more pot. He sleeps on the couch more often. Winona is certain this is all her fault. Under the stress, in the LA smog, she contracts asthma and begins sleepwalking. For Naomi, moving her family to Hollywood is probably an attempt to break into show business. Within a year, she's spending an inappropriate amount of time with a wannabe actor neighbor. In September of 1971, Naomi kicks Michael out of the house. She is now a single mother with no job and no car. She and her young daughters are about to find out what it's like to live with a physically abusive man. Winona remembers her mother taking any job she can get. Eventually acquiring a car, Naomi finds work as a secretary, a model, a game show contestant. Whatever comes up, the closer to being in front of a camera, the better. Her image goes from that pixie haircut, miniskirt mod thing to a vampy red lipstick and Victorian blouses thing then to an Appalachia meets American Indian blend of ankle-length tapestry skirts, turquoise jewelry, and leather moccasins. Winona also remembers walking to West Hollywood Elementary and back. Every day, often alone, down sunset, past strip clubs, and the whiskey a go-go. She's seven years old, with a house key that she wears on a necklace. One day, coming home from school, a man pulls his car up to the sidewalk and cruises along with her walking pace. He says some stuff, gets her to look down at his lap, and he's been jerking off the whole time he's talking to her. She runs away screaming. It's around this time that wannabe actor neighbor moves in. He goes by the ridiculous name of James Dean Jr. No credits on IMDb. James sometimes makes lunch for the girls and babysits them. He also sometimes hits Naomi and knocks the girls around a little bit. There's an incident where he throws Winona up a staircase. Again, she's around seven or eight years old. Naomi eventually kicks James out. He moves into an apartment across the street and takes up some new hobbies, like leaving cheap wristwatches under a tire of her car. So they'll be smashed as Naomi leaves, letting him learn her weekly schedule. He also develops a taste for breaking into her home and attacking male visitors. Hobbies like that. The police have to get involved before it all stops. Michael Ciminella tried moving back in during all this, but he and Naomi still couldn't keep it together. It seems that Naomi truly despises him. She tells little Ashley that her father is a liar and a cheater sometimes going so far as to say Michael tried to convince Naomi to abort her. Other times, she tells Ashley that she was an accident of faulty birth control, a, quote, foam baby. Confronted with this lie in later years, Naomi will confess that Ashley had, in fact, been well-planned. Here in California in the early 70s, Naomi insists Michael abandoned them all because he did not love them and that he refused to help out financially. Michael later tells the girls he always wanted to be around and help out, but Naomi would never let him. His job takes him to Chicago, but he soon decides to quit and go country. Near the end of 1974, Michael moves into a rundown fishing shack that he calls Camp Wig. 
It's on the Kentucky River, only heated by a wood-burning stove, but it does have indoor plumbing, which is a luxury for the area. Naomi wasn't the only one who'd smoked pot in California. Michael had even dabbled in stronger psychedelics on the weekend with friends. He'd grown up in a country club family and married a woman who dragged him straight into Hollywood, the unofficial capital of materialism. Traveling that road brought one big headache after another. So maybe getting out of the rat race and away from the city lights is where he'll find happiness. With her dreams of fame not working out, Naomi sends the kids to live with Michael at Camp Wig and heads to Austin, Texas for a while. She gets into the music scene there a bit, then heads up to Kentucky as well, having decided to become a nurse. Michael lets her move in to Camp Wig. The beginning of 1975 finds the Chiminella family under one roof again. Both daughters' memories of Camp Wig read like a commercial from the Kentucky Board of Tourism. Their father catching fish or hunting up their dinner, spending days swimming in the river, jumping from a fence onto the backs of unsaddled horses to ride as far as they can before falling off, chasing fireflies at sunset through grass grown over their heads. This is where both girls remember music becoming a major part of their lives. Michael plays a little guitar. He has hippie friends out for parties and there's always some album playing. Warren Zevon, The Rolling Stones, Joni Mitchell. Could skate away on. But it don't snow here. It stays pretty green. I'm gonna make a lot of money. Then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene. I wish I had a river. I could skate away on. They're living as if in deep poverty. When it's hot, they sweat. When it's cold, they shiver. When the river floods, they get scared. But unlike the neighbors, they can leave anytime they want. The Chimanellas are slumming it. The constant fighting between Michael and Naomi, combined with a particularly bad instance of the river flooding, caused the adults to realize their time at Camp Wig must come to an end. Michael moves to a place in town where the girls live with him until the end of the school year. They sometimes visit Naomi for a weekend at her one-room bungalow in the nearby town of Berea, the folk arts and crafts capital of Kentucky. One of these mother-daughter weekends in Berea, driving somewhere during a rainstorm, Naomi sees an elderly woman slip off the curb into the street, clearly injuring her ankle. They circle back, get the woman to a hospital, and wait around to take her home. Chatting during all of this, Naomi mentions her current situation, explaining they'd been out driving to look for a new place where she could live with her daughters. The next time Naomi checks her mail, there's a letter. Not from the woman she'd helped, but one of that woman's colleagues. Mrs. Allen, a music professor at Berea College. Mrs. Allen writes that she heard a nice young lady was looking for an affordable place to live with her two daughters. She gives a time and place for Naomi to come meet her with a little map of how to get there. The next weekend, Naomi and the girls follow the map to a gated property and meet Mrs. Allen in the front yard of a two-story, four-bedroom house with hardwood floors, entirely furnished with antiques, a Steinway grand piano in the living room and a stone fireplace. There are berry bushes in the backyard. 
A huge picture window by the piano in the living room looks out onto an apple tree in the front yard. Mrs. Allen explains, this is her property and this is her house, but she does not live in this house. She is a wealthy woman. This house, named Chanticleer, is just one of two houses on the property. She lives in the other. There are also some small cabins for a children's music camp that Mrs. Allen hosts once a year. During the camp, students stay in the cabins and instructors stay at Chanticleer. The rest of the year, it's totally unoccupied. Seeing as how she doesn't really need the money, Naomi and the girls can move into Chanticleer for how does $100 a month sound? Ashley is now about 7 years old and Winona around 11. Naomi, still in nursing school, often leaves her daughters to entertain themselves. Ashley creates a fantasy world with fairies and imaginary friends. Winona wraps herself up in music. Naomi's owned a guitar since receiving one as a going-away gift in California. Michael taught Winona some chords at Camp Wig. Here, living on a college music professor's property with a piano in her living room, Wise's relationship with music moves beyond a childhood whim into something like fascination, an obsession. She's listening to Emmylou Harris, Bill Monroe, Ralph Stanley, Doc Watson. Come on, you good time people, while I've got money to spend, for tomorrow might be Monday, and I neither have a dollar nor a My friends are all standing around But as soon as my pocketbook is empty Not a friend on this earth can be found The real stuff. Mrs. Allen gives her piano lessons, but she's far more interested in guitar, practicing for hours and hours on her own. The elementary school in Berea is a bit of a drive from Chanticleer, and Naomi has college classes that start very early, so everyone has to be up and in the car by 5 in the morning. Naomi drops the girls off at the house of some schoolmates. After school, the girls come back to this house to wait for Naomi to pick them up. Or not. Sometimes they just wander around town, unsupervised. You know, like how kids used to be able to do back in the good old days. Winona will walk down to the student center at the college to play pool. She's apparently good enough to hustle $5 games from college students and go play pinball with the money. Sometimes she does this instead of going to school at all. Ashley, left similarly unattended even though she's only in first or second grade, is sexually molested by a man in Berea. The first adults she tells do not believe her, so she tells no other adults. She does not tell Naomi. Despite spending most of her childhood living in close quarters with her mother and sister, Ashley sinks into isolation from an early age. Extreme isolation. Not out of some inherent introversion, but because she feels she's clearly not a priority. To her mother, maybe not to anyone around. These feelings are magnified by the increasingly codependent relationship between her mother and sister. Winona seems to have had a pretty healthy head start on becoming a typically histrionic teenager. 
Here at Chanticleer, her fights with Naomi are already intense and frequent. At the other end of the spectrum, their bonding sessions over music are equally intense. Learning to play and sing songs together. Bluegrass, Merle Haggard, Dolly Parton. I am a seeker, a poor sinful creature. There is no weaker than I am. I am a seeker, and you are a teacher. You are a reacher, so reach down. Reach out and lead me, guide me and keep me in the shelter of your care each day. Whether Naomi and Winona are fighting or practicing, Ashley is left on the sideline. Winona and Ashley do love each other dearly. After all, they're the only ones around who know what it's like to live with Naomi. But Ashley sometimes becomes the target of Winona's wilder impulses. One of everyone's favorite stories to tell is about what happened during the family's move away from Chanticleer. First of all, you're probably thinking a person would have to be entirely out of their mind to leave such an amazing house with such low rent. Well, according to Naomi, there was an unpleasant situation with a neighbor who broke into Chanticleer and stole some stuff. After the police interrogated the suspect, one of the family's pet cats showed up murdered on the welcome mat outside their front door, traumatizing the girls and setting into motion a chain of events that lead to her decision to leave Chanticleer. Neither daughter mentions a murdered pet. Ashley says they left Chanticleer because Naomi's parents were getting a divorce and Naomi was being asked to testify on behalf of one against the other, so she ran away. Winona's explanation is that's just what Naomi does. She gets restless, packs up, and leaves. With her younger brother Mark to help drive, Naomi packs up a U-Haul and aims it at California. Winona and Ashley are put in the back of the truck. Naomi rigs the pull-down door to stay open a little bit, so the girls have fresh air back there, and they hit the road. If you've never made that drive, from Kentucky to California, it's long as hell. Winona, bored and pretty pissed off about having to leave Chanticleer, takes it out on the only person around, her little sister. She jumps on top of her and keeps licking her face until Ashley pees her pants. When she escapes, Ashley takes off her shirt, sticks it through that crack in the door, and starts waving it around like a flag, hoping someone will rescue her. There just so happens to be a police officer behind them at the time. So Naomi gets pulled over for a lecture on how irresponsible it is to put small children in the back of a U-Haul at all, let alone with heavy furniture. And Winona gets a spanking from her Uncle Mark. When they reach California, it's back to the old way of doing things for a few years. Naomi and the girls cram into a one-bedroom apartment next to a bar, then a duplex. During their music sessions, Naomi and Wise shut the bedroom door to keep Ashley from bothering them. Naomi gives little assignments. Learn these lyrics or this chord progression by the next practice. And if Winona doesn't do it, Naomi calls her lazy and they fight. Michael Ciminella is entirely absent from these years. No cards, no letters. 
Though he later insists that he did write and send checks which were always cashed by Naomi. At 14 years old, Winona finds a job cleaning tack in the stables of a nearby ranch. The radio there stays tuned to a local country station. She sings along with the hits of late 70s country radio while she works. One day, the station has a contest for some Merle Haggard tickets. She's not the lucky caller, but Merle being one of her favorites, she tells Naomi she'll save the money and buy the tickets herself if they can go to the concert. Naomi agrees. Why saves the money? They go to the show. Winona remembers them leaving Ashley at a friend's house. Ashley remembers being left alone at home. Naomi only tells the first part of this story. After pulling into the parking lot at the venue in Oakland, Naomi leans out her window, flashes a smile at the parking attendant, and asks if it would be alright for her to park back by the buses. Oh, by the way, even though Naomi is living paycheck to paycheck and struggling to make ends meet, she drives a red 57 Chevy with a personalized license plate that says Red Hot. And she'd just put a set of white wall tires on the thing. That's the reason she gives the attendant for wanting to park by the buses instead of out in that crazy public parking lot. It works. And wouldn't you know it, Naomi and her daughter happen to be right there, dressed like movie stars from the 1940s, when Merle Haggard gets off the bus to walk his little dog, Tuffy. After speaking with them for a little while, Merle invites them onto the bus. This isn't Naomi's first brush with a famous musician. Back in Kentucky, she and her sister had met the band one night. Levon Helm even took a liking to her, though Naomi insists she didn't go back to his hotel room, and that Levon was pretty upset about it. Here in Oakland, Merle suggests they watch the concert from the side of the stage instead of out front. This is where Naomi's version of the story ends. Winona's version has Merle making another suggestion after the concert. He suggests Naomi and her 14-year-old daughter join him on the bus for a few days. They go. Ashley remembers being left alone for days. Red hot, Naomi's beautiful 57 Chevy that she needed to park near the buses so nobody would mess with it during the concert stays where it is, sitting in that parking lot. Merle Haggard's sons, Marty and Noel, are with him for Winona to make friends. She, of course, develops a powerful crush on Noel, and after a few days, mother and daughter fly home with a new favorite hobby. Turns out, Naomi has a real talent for getting backstage at concerts. They get to see Emmylou Harris, Dolly Parton, Ricky Skaggs, Doc Watson, plus some non-country acts like Tower of Power and Huey Lewis in the News. Naomi's drive to make music with her daughter kicks into overdrive. She begins playing harmonica and making connections in the local music scene. 
After fourth grade, Ashley is sent to her Kentucky grandparents for the summer. At the end of that summer, Ashley is left in Kentucky. And Naomi pulls Winona out of school so they can focus on music together. This is where Naomi stops going by Diana, the name she was given at birth, and starts going by Naomi. They get matching jackets with the words Hillbilly Women embroidered on them. They get on some very small shows in LA. They move to Austin, Texas just long enough for Naomi to date the harmonica player of Asleep at the Wheel and Winona to ditch her given name of Christina. She takes Winona from a Bobby Troop song Asleep at the Wheel plays, Route 66. Get your kicks on Route 66. Now it goes through St. Louis, Joplin, Missouri. Oklahoma City looks so, so pretty. You'll see Amarillo, Gallupu, Mexico. Flagstaff, Arizona, don't forget Winona. Kings, Boston, San Bernardino wants you. Back in Los Angeles, the Judds enter a talent show at the Palomino Club. They don't win, but Naomi meets a producer from Nashville who offers her a job with a show he's got in Las Vegas. Despite this having nothing to do with the Judds as a musical act, which is supposed to be the whole reason why Nona isn't in school, Naomi takes the gig. They move into a suite at the Aladdin. Winona spends her days playing guitar in the hotel room and roller skating. Loretta Lynn's doing a residency in the showroom, so at night, Winona goes down to watch her perform. It all comes to a screeching halt when this Nashville guy's production gets suddenly canceled. The type of suddenly canceled where Winona and Naomi are packing their bags as fast as they can to get out of the hotel before anyone starts asking questions about who's paying bills. But that producer guy said he had connections in Nashville. So that's the next move for the Judds. This is near the end of 1979. Of course, that Nashville producer guy ends up being no help. Their first months in Nashville are spent living in cheap motel rooms or house-sitting for friends if an opportunity comes up. Ashley is brought down from Kentucky before Naomi even has a place for them to live. The kid goes from spending a happy summer with her grandparents to sleeping in random houses and watching TV alone while her mom is out working. When Naomi finds a hundred-year-old farmhouse for rent in Franklin, the family settles into something resembling a routine. Ashley enters sixth grade and spends most of her time wishing she still lived with her grandparents. Winona enters ninth grade a year late and spirals deeper still into an unhealthy love-hate relationship with her mother. Naomi starts dating one of Elvis Presley's old backup singers, and the relationship sounds pretty intense. When things are good, he'll come over and have loud sex with Naomi, the headboard banging against the wall shared by Ashley's bedroom. When things are bad, Naomi steams open his mail while he's on tour, or 
secretly follows the tour bus for hours to see if he has any female company when he gets to a hotel. Sometimes he does. Once, Naomi gets so mad at him that she fires a 38 special over his head into the dining room wall. After that, Winona sits there at dinner, staring at that bullet hole, trying to think of ways to keep Naomi happy with her. Getting better at singing and playing guitar is one thing that makes her happy, but it isn't always enough. Their arguments have evolved into full-blown fistfights, by the way. Someone usually calls the cops if Naomi starts acting like she's going for her gun. Around 11 or 12 years old, when she's at home alone, Ashley starts getting that gun out, holding it, thinking about what it might be like to shoot herself in the head with it. She writes a long letter to her grandparents about what life with Naomi is like, but it never reaches its destination. After placing it in the mailbox, she sees that letter again, sitting on her mother's dresser. Naomi tells her, Don't you ever talk bad about me to my daddy again. It's another five years before Ashley is able to escape, and things get a lot worse for her before they get any better, but this is where we leave her until the 90s. On Winona's first day of ninth grade, she's a year older than the rest of the kids, dressed in her mother's 1940s Hollywood thrift shop dresses and driving that red 57 Chevy. When she walks in, her classmates think she's a teacher. But when you have a car in ninth grade, you make friends. It's even better if you haven't started drinking yet because you can be the DD. Drive your friends around to parties, get into bars using fake IDs, all that fun stuff. Very nearly being raped at a party with some older kids turns her off from that scene. This whole time, Naomi has never given up hustling for the Judd's musical dreams. In 1980, she talks their way on to Ralph Emery's early morning TV show. Ralph butchers their names, calling them something like Nairobi and Wyoming. He may have felt bad about that because he has them back on several more times, despite them frankly not being very good yet, as heard in this clip of one early appearance. My coat of many colors that my mama made for me I could spend time picking it apart, but the short version is, they aren't singing harmonies so much as they are singing the same song, mostly at the same time, mostly on pitch. This is not the blood harmony of the Leuven Brothers. Still good enough for morning TV. These appearances give Winona some cool points at her school, but nothing like, say, a popular cheerleader. Nothing like, say, Diana Maher, a popular cheerleader, one year ahead of Winona in school, daughter of Brent Maher, a producer for Dobie Gray, Ike and Tina Turner, Dave Loggins, and Dottie West. Somebody's gonna give you a lesson in leaving. Somebody's gonna give you back what you've been given, and I hope that I'm around. Watch them knock you down. It's like you to love them and leave them just like you love me and left me. It's like you to do that sort of thing. Over 
Diana Mayer watches the Judds on Ralph Emery's morning shows, but they don't know about that until she's in a bad car accident and taken to the hospital where Naomi works as a nurse. It's there that Diana tells Naomi she wants her father to hear the Judds. Naomi brings in a tape they'd recorded on a crappy little Kmart cassette recorder. Brent Mayer is obviously far more concerned with his daughter's recovery and whatever previous obligations were no doubt thrown off schedule by all of this, but some weeks later he does eventually listen to that tape. Producers hear a lot of demo tapes. Great producers hear a lot more than what's on the tape. Being a great producer, Brent hears potential. Not only that, he knows who the Judds need to work with to realize that potential. A man named Don Potter. Later, Winona Judd will single out Don Potter as being pivotal in the Judds making it and keeping it together once it was made. Jazz fans may recognize his name from guitar work with Chuck Mangione in the 70s. Don Potter began coming out to that 100-year-old farmhouse for long practice sessions. Essentially, they're teaching what we think of as the Judd sound to the Judds. Now, of course, Winona and Naomi are the women who go in the studio and go on stage to perform this sound. So the ability was always there. But it's a lot more than ability that goes into great musicianship, especially a vocal duet act. Don Potter's great talent is as an arranger. And over time, he and Brent Mayer arranged the Judd's voices as they would any other pair of instruments, showing them both dynamics and restraint. How to create space in a song, when to leave it, when to fill it, how to stop singing simultaneously and start singing together, helping Winona unlock what she can really do with her voice. They do this for maybe a few months before Brent and Don realize that nearly every moment they aren't around, the Judd home is a war zone. One of their big blow-ups nearly ends everything before it can begin. Naomi's out on the road with that singer boyfriend of hers when a friend asks if Winona will drive them to Atlanta for a couple days. They don't ask for permission or anything. They just take off in the crappy Honda Winona's now driving. In Atlanta, the friend calls his parents to let them know what's going on. They flip out and tell him he's going to boarding school if he isn't home by midnight. 
That kid's headed home on an airplane when the brakes in the Honda go out. Winona is stuck in Atlanta. She hits up this singer she knows who says she can stay with him at his mom's house. She calls Naomi to give her an update. Naomi tells her to not bother coming home because she's done dealing with her. Then shit gets weird. This singer in Atlanta who lives with his mom, he's got problems. First thing, he's supposed to be on psych meds but doesn't always take them. Second, his mom seems pretty sure that the Lord delivered Winona unto them so she could quit trying to be a singer and start being her son's girlfriend. Which leads us to the third problem. Being the fact that this kid's already been messing around with some girl who's one of these psycho stalker obsessive types. Her near nightly drive past the house lets her see Winona living there. This leads to some good old-fashioned white trash yelling matches in the front yard. Basically, Winona's gone from a crazy home life to living in a full-tilt boogie insane asylum. And her mom told her to just stay there. But also, Naomi's version is that Winona stole money from her and ran away from home. After about a month, Michael Ciminella's father finds out about this situation and immediately goes down there to get his granddaughter's car fixed and help her get to Ocala, Florida, where Michael's working on a horse farm. I'm not sure how long Winona stays in Florida, but it's long enough to cut her hair short and stop dyeing it red. Long enough for Michael to talk her into going to college. When she does call her mother to check in, Naomi says her boyfriend has a gig coming up in a hotel bar down there. Naomi's throwing all Wise clothing in trash bags and sending it down with him. If she wants her stuff, she can go pick it up. Now, I haven't been avoiding using this guy's name for any weird reason. It's just that right here is where he stopped being relevant. After he talks Winona into coming back to Nashville by reminding her she knows her place is on stage performing. He tells her if she can't make living with Naomi work, he'll even help her get her own place. She goes home, everything picks up where it left off. You might think Brent Mayer and Don Potter, having spent well over a year developing this act, would be the ones to get them signed to a record deal. Nope. In June of 1982, Naomi meets a publicist named Woody Bowles. Woody and his money man, Ken Stiltz, become the Judd's managers. The whole time Don and Brent are working on the music, Ken and Woody are out there trying to drum up interest in the backstory. Oh, and the music, too. But really, their demo tape has been turned down all over town. In spring of 1983, Curb Records takes the bait. Some small independent record labels do middleman deals between artists and bigger labels. Curb is one of these labels. They're not merely interested in the Judds. They see the potential for something big to happen here. And they set up an audition with the head of RCA's Nashville division. In person is good for the Judds. Great even. Brent Mayer, after hearing that crappy Kmart tape, He'd gone over to their house to hear them in person and decide if he wanted to work with them. The hundred-year-old farmhouse in Franklin, where Naomi made her own soap, where the back porch had a ringer washer for doing the laundry, 
Winona has always been very public about Naomi playing up the poor country girl act anytime she wanted to really push it over the edge, laying on that southern accent way thicker than it usually was. Get Naomi in a room and you'll see the same southern charm that used to get them backstage in California. At the RCA audition, Naomi delivers the backstory and they perform two songs. One Naomi wrote called Change of Heart and a song Kenny O'Dell wrote for them called Mama He's Crazy. Mama He's Crazy, crazy over me. And in my life is where he says he always wants to be. I've never been so loved. That gets them signed. They hit the studio with Don and Brent to cut a six-song EP, and they're sent to what Winona calls media school. If you've ever seen a stereotypically moody teenager listen to their parents talk, you can imagine why the Judds need to be sent to media school. Naomi will launch into some story she's told a hundred times, and Winona's eyes about roll out of their sockets. If Naomi starts getting too far away from the truth or leaning too hard on that accent, Winona's liable to call her out right there, even if they're on TV. Here in a post-Kardashian world, you're probably thinking, so what? In the early 1980s, country music audiences will not stand for a child disrespecting her mother that way. RCA doesn't want these two to meet the world until Winona can reel it in a bit. And it's not like this record deal has magically repaired the mother-daughter relationship. If anything, now they have more to argue about. Like how Naomi thinks their outfit should always match and Winona wants to dress differently to express her individuality. Keep in mind, on top of the dysfunctional relationship with her mother, Winona is dealing with all the usual bullshit that comes with being a young woman in her late teens. Insecurity, anxiety, body dysmorphia, the early stages of an eating disorder. This is not an armchair diagnosis from me. She's been open about all of this. Try to remember how terrible you felt about, oh, pretty much everything when you were a teenager. Now imagine feeling like that on national television or radio while sitting next to your mother, who drives you absolutely out of your mind. Now, add in the fact that it's an exceptional day when someone doesn't ask, so which one is supposed to be the mother and which one is the daughter? Add in the fact that Naomi is still so young and petite that people are not joking when they ask that question. Some people think they're lying about being mother and daughter. Not fun for a teenage girl. Five months after signing the contract with RCA, Winona moves out of Naomi's house and into the house of one of their managers. In November of 1983, the first Judd single comes out on RCA Curb. The song was written by Dennis Lindy, and the original recording of it was in 1975 by the 50s superstar Teresa Brewer. Well, I'm high, I'm high, I'm high. 
That arrangement was like a blend between Jimmy Reed style blues and choir gospel. In 1976, Elvis Presley covered it in sort of a post Stevie Wonder rockabilly style. important to note these points, because the whole vibe that Brent Mayer and Don Potter came up with for the Judds is like, these girls love white people blues and white people rock, and they're from Kentucky, so it all sounds country. Primarily using acoustic instruments like guitar and dobro is a conscious decision to keep things sounding smooth and laid back. Naomi would even call this the Judds rule number three acoustic guitars only. Their version of Had a Dream for the Heart opens with a barely there acoustic guitar, and nothing else but Winona's voice taking a little pre-run stretch for the first 20 seconds, then a solo lap around the first chorus. It's immediately clear who's pulling the weight in this act. It's also clear that the time with Don and Brent was very well spent when Naomi comes in on the verse, in sync and on pitch. Had a dream about you, baby. Had a dream about me and you. Had a dream and I woke up crying. Well, I can try, but I just can't stop. And the time's dragging by a TikTok. Oh, my heart, it just can't love no one but you. Well, I'm high and dry and lonely. I'm as lonesome as can be. And I stare out of my window Well, I can play, but I just can't win And the weather's looking mighty grim Oh, my heart, it just can't love no one but you so this first single comes out with its gentle boogie-woogie feel and it goes to number 17 on country charts. That's a hit. It's also the worst performance in America of any Judd single released from here until their breakup announcement in 1991. Only three of their next 17 singles will fail to hit number one, and those three are still top tens. Some people will say the Judds owe that streak to how they were promoted, which I'm about to get into. But I don't think that's any more true for them than it is for everyone else. The Judds were sent into the same gauntlet as every new major label artist in the early 80s, the promo tour. We all know what it means when a band goes on tour. They either just put out an album or they're a legacy act like the Rolling Stones who doesn't have to put out albums. They hit the road to hopefully make a bunch of money playing music for a bunch of people in different cities. 
A promo tour is just like that, except instead of playing concerts to audiences, the band is playing to the media. Playing music, but also playing nice. You can see a clear example of promo tours at work in the modern movie industry by watching network television for a week or two. You'll see the same actor pop up on several different talk shows because that actor is on a promo tour. They do those shows and they book hotel suites where all the website journalists come take turns interviewing them. That's part of what a promo tour looks like for actors in 2018. The 1980s version of this for musicians meant going around the country to get interviewed and play a song or two on air at just about every major radio station. You'd also hang out with all the station employees. Sign autographs, take pictures, maybe do a private performance just for them, every bit of that. Then you'd spend the evening schmoozing in a hotel suite party or a rented out bar with the real power players. Radio programmers, sales and promo reps, big shots from your record label's local office. Get back up the next day, go to a new city, and you do it all over again. That's what the Judds do for nearly a year following the release of their first single and continuing into promoting their second single, Mama He's Crazy. The song that helped them get signed to RCA is released as a single in April of 1984. By August, it's their first number one, the first of 14 number ones in a row. This and their next single both win Grammy Awards. The day Mama He's Crazy goes number one, Naomi quits her job at the hospital. She's 38 years old. Winona is 20. It's around this time that the Judds play their first concert, opening for the Statler Brothers in Nebraska. Yes, you heard that correctly. It's around the time of their second single becoming their first number one, a month before it went number one, to be precise, that the Judds play their first concert. We're so used to hearing about bands playing dozens, if not hundreds, of shows before they ever even get noticed by a label that we come to think of that as the legitimate way to work your way up to making great albums. Anyone who doesn't spend years sweating it out in crappy little venues hasn't paid their dues. But that's like saying you need to be a demolition derby champion in order to be able to properly drive yourself to the grocery store. Playing shows and making albums are entirely separate things. Playing a lot of shows can make you a great performer. It's guaranteed to make you a much better musician and it's one path you can take to making great albums. But you can learn everything you need to know to make great albums without playing a single concert. Especially if your teachers are a world-class producer and musician like Brent Mayer and Don Potter. The Judds learned how to make great albums straight from people who make great albums. Then they made great albums. It's that simple. Topping their initial hit with a number one single from that same first batch of songs was enough to let the label know they had something big. The Judds were sent back in the studio to record a full-length album, Why Not Me? If we're still worried about street cred here, the title track was written to order by Sonny Throckmorton and Harlan Howard. Brent Mayer almost always split the Judd's albums evenly between five sleepy lullaby type songs and five mid-tempo grooves. 
He needed one more of those mid-tempo grooves. He called Harlan on a Sunday, which Harlan had planned to spend fishing. But Brent bribed him with some self-tied fishing lures. Harlan wanted those lures, but he actually didn't have any songs at the moment, so he suggested bringing in Throckmorton. Sonny'd been working on this melody for a while, and he had a title, How About Me? Well, Harlan had recently heard a different song called How About Me, so he changed the title and hears him explaining the rest in a later interview. Why Not Me wasn't a great title, and What About Me wasn't either. To get a really good record, you've got to write a hell of a song when you're dealing with a title that average. The only thing I know to do with songs like Why Not Me and Busted, which I never thought was a good title, is to put the title in there so often that people remember it. The weaker the title, the more you gotta hear it. The finished product becomes the leadoff single. And if you don't like it, then you don't like the Judds, because this is the sound of them hitting their stride. In the verses, right before she does the thing Harlan talked about by repeating the name of the song, the younger Kentucky girl makes sure you're paying attention by abruptly throwing her voice higher at the end of every setup line. You can also listen under Don Potter's excellent guitar playing for the laid back sound of the keyboard player slapping the back of an acoustic guitar in place of a snare drum. With verses that strong, a chorus is just follow through. The single comes out in September of 1984, the full length in October, and the Judds are on the road in a tour bus. Friends, if you know any two people with a talent for not getting along, putting them together in a tour bus for any stretch of time, not a great idea. The first bus the Judds buy is a Silver Eagle. That's a 45-foot-long vehicle, max. And it could have been 40, even 35 feet. Not very much room at all. There's the usual couch, kitchenette, dining table in the front, but instead of one suite at the back of the bus, they have two. The only way to get to the suite all the way at the back is through the first one, and the doors don't lock. Naomi gets the suite all the way to the back of the bus, and Winona doesn't get even the illusion of privacy. In hotels, she and Naomi are always given adjoining rooms. This is not how young people become self-sufficient adults, and it doesn't seem that Winona was ever treated as one. If there's an award show or televised performance coming up, Naomi chooses an outfit that looks good on her, and Winona's clothes are coordinated around that. Management decisions are made between Naomi and Ken Stiltz, the Judd's sole manager, after he bought out Woody Bowles in 1986. Winona is rarely asked for input, often simply told what to do after the fact. Her voice may dominate their music, but Naomi dominates everything else. This daughter begins to feel like an employee of this mother. 
And you may say, so what? The family business is turning everyone into millionaires. Yeah. But something about being raised with the illusion of poverty and an always-there safety net of well-off grandparents by a mother who drives a fancy car with vanity plates when the fridge is empty and you're supposedly broke, and then being left out of practically every decision or even discussion involving finances, well, let's just say Winona's understanding of and respect for money may not be very strong. When the Judds go to New York City after making it big right before Christmas, Winona and her first credit cards rack up thousands of dollars worth of presents. Ken Stiltz takes her credit cards away and cuts them up. This legal adult with no personal space and no autonomy lashes out. One night after performing near a college, she's invited to a party and she goes. When she finally returns to the venue, all the buses and semi-trucks are loaded up, ready to go, parked in a line behind Winona and Naomi's bus. Everyone just waiting on her so they can drive all night to the next town and do their jobs. Make no mistake, this is wildly unprofessional behavior. If I was anyone in that crew facing an all-night drive, I'd be pissed off at this kid, and you would too. But we have no reason to expect her to know any better. Until now, until she sees all these people waiting on her like that and realizes her behavior now impacts the lives of so many others besides Naomi, who is naturally irate. Codependent relationships usually play out in a cyclical fashion. You could sum this one up as Naomi inevitably expresses displeasure with something Winona's done. Winona, desperately needing to please Naomi, bottles up her feelings of inadequacy to do so, until she eventually lashes out. They make peace, rinse, and repeat. The Judds could never have had nearly a decade of number one singles without Winona's voice, but her talent means nothing without Naomi's satisfaction. When U2's Joshua Tree Tour stops through Tennessee and Winona joins them on stage alone, that may have given her some confidence. Getting her own apartment in Nashville and dating Dwight Yoakam for a year during his mid-80s breakout stardom, that may have given her some independence. Moving to a secluded log cabin outside Franklin, Tennessee, that may have given her an even stronger feeling of independence. But for the codependent child, independence soon becomes isolation. In the year 1990, when Naomi learns she has hepatitis C and will have to quit touring, you may as well drop Winona off on a desert island. It was only at the very end of the 80s that hepatitis C was confirmed to exist. So this diagnosis itself in January of 1990 doesn't initially look like the giant stop sign that it really is. But Naomi's condition rapidly deteriorates. By July, with several canceled shows behind them, reality has sunk in. When Winona's finally told Naomi is too sick to continue with the Judds, she says she feels like she's the one dying. An October press conference at the record label, one month after the release of their final album, updates the world on Naomi's illness. Behind the scenes, attention is split between planning the Judd's farewell tour and the launch of Winona as a solo artist. 
The farewell tour stretches from February of 1991 until December. They play 116 cities, which sounds like a lot for someone who has to retire due to an illness, but Ken Stilt keeps adding dates to make sure they get everything they can out of this final tour. The last show is made available as a pay-per-view television event. The tour grosses $21 million. One of their opening acts is a kid named Garth Brooks. Naomi probably doesn't have to be talked into any of this, by the way. She clearly doesn't want to let go, and this could be her last chance to soak up the adoration from their fans. That does not, however, keep her from growing weaker. Her daughter now has to help her get ready for the show, doing her hair, getting her dressed. Under the stage lights, it's all smiling and waving and singing. Back in their connected bedroom suites on the bus, there's a lot of crying. Naomi says things like she's bought funeral plots for the entire family so they can all be together forever. She's gone out and bought a ton of Christmas presents for her future grandchildren, in case she won't be around to spoil them. So this is where Winona Judd is at, mentally, as her solo career is being planned. Not by her, but for her. If you expect Ken Stiltz or anyone else to now start including Winona in the decisions Naomi was making before, that's not what happens. They just start making decisions themselves, such as the decision to drop her last name and have her be known as simply Winona, like Madonna or Prince. This is ostensibly to keep her albums from being put with the Judd's albums in store racks, to give her a separate identity and the decision to move from RCA to MCA Nashville, home of Reba McIntyre and George Strait, where Winona will be produced by the label's president, Tony Brown, rather than the only producer she's ever worked with, Brent Mayer. These are big decisions for an artist to not be involved in, but Winona may not even be aware that she has the option to be involved. She never was when Naomi made the decision, so the only thing that changes here is, well, nothing. She's never known things like how much money is made or what the expenses are per show. She doesn't even know how much money she's worth. They put money in her checking account, she goes where they tell her to go, and sings when they tell her to sing. That's how it's been with the Judds, and that's how we're rolling into her solo career. But let's check out some of the Judd's biggest hits so we're all on the same page with the musical changes that are coming. There were two more hits on that first album. Girls' Night Out, a feel-good party anthem for the ladies, rocking out about as much as you can with acoustic guitars. Then Love is Alive, a song so gentle you could put a baby to sleep with it. 
Their next album, Rockin' with the Rhythm, kicked off with the single Have Mercy. Slow motion rockabilly meets boogie bass and piano. Then, ethereal lullaby prettiness for Grandpa, Tell Me About the Good Old Days. Lovers really fall in love to stay. Stand beside each other, come what may. Promise really something people can't, not just something they would say. Families really bow their heads to pray. Daddy's really never go away. Oh, oh, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. And now we're wide awake again for the title track, Rockin' with the Rhythm of the Rain. You should be sensing a pattern here. I mentioned it earlier, but Brent Mare always tried to evenly split Judd's albums between upbeat and down-tempo songs. I'm just going through some singles, but if you listen to the full albums, the vibe practically alternates track by track. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip to the title track of their last album, Love Can Build a Bridge. I would give my heart's desire so that you might see The first step is to realize That it all begins with you and me It's sort of their We Are The World, used by several charities. But take away the gospel choir and it's the same basic formula as always. Despite the Judd's rule number three, they did use electric guitar on some songs. Even bringing Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits and Carl Perkins into the studio to play on the River of Time album. None of this electric guitar work was ever anything that would rile the feathers of country music fans. Okay, now, 
Here's Winona's first single, which went number one on country charts and number 25 adult contemporary. She is his only need. That's when he started going over the line, working overtime to give up things just to hear her say she don't deserve them. But he loved her and he just kept going Sounds exactly like the Judd's down-tempo stuff, right? The second single, I Saw the Light, is another song you could hear the Judds doing, but an arrangement featuring mostly electric instruments and male backup singers lets us know the formula is being updated. This also went to number one. Baby, when the They seem to be playing it pretty safe, but what they're really doing is testing the waters. Because Winona's third single had already been put out as the B-side of her first single. Maybe to see if it caused any death threats or at least angry letters. Because it was on some entirely new shit. It goes number one country, obviously. And it tops out at number 35, Adult Contemporary, but it also breaks into the Hot 100 at 83. That's Winona's biggest mainstream hit so far. The Judd's music had always been pop radio friendly country, but it never really got played on pop radio. This song is more like country radio friendly pop. If you can make yourself forget that this is Winona Judd, Forget that you've thought of it as a country song for the past 25 years. The production sounds like someone took a 45 of Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters theme and played it at 33 RPM. I've been a rock and I got my fences. I never let them down. When it comes to love, I keep my senses. It sounds like Whitney Houston's How Will I Know on Horse Tranquilizers. I shivered once, you broke into my soul, the damage is done now, I'm out of control, how did you get to me? No one else on earth could ever hurt me, break my heart the way you do. No one else on earth was no one could love me 
like this song, and I already told you I guess it's a country song, but if aliens land on the planet tomorrow and say they're eliminating the human species, unless I can explain to them why this is a country song, we're history. Here's where things get interesting. No One Else on Earth is released as an A-side in August of 1992. It hits number one country on October 24th and stays there for four weeks. Country radio listeners hear this song the whole three months it takes to climb to the top of the chart. During the month that the song is number one, they hear it a lot. Enough to maybe start wondering, wait. Does this even sound like country music? The week No One Else on Earth leaves number one, it falls to number nine. The week after that, number 13. And the following week, on December 5th, her label releases the next single from her album. It's a major bummer of a heartbreak song the Judds totally would have done called My Strongest Weakness. I gave my faithful heart So why would they have followed up her biggest hit ever with a song that goes back to her sound from before that hit? One reason is because there wasn't another song on her album that sounded like No One Else on Earth, because they were testing the waters. Start with a single that sounds like the Judds. Give them a single that sounds like the Judds gone electric. Then blow the barn doors wide open with straight up pop before dialing it back to the Judd sound and looking around to see if anyone noticed. Pay attention to how they had that dial it back single on the market as soon as the pop experiment single began to fall. See, I don't think they were testing whether or not Winona could cross over to pop audiences. I think they were trying to see if her country fan base would stick with her when she did. Because even though My Strongest Weakness is a comfortable return to a sound that fans of the Judds know and love, the song only goes to number four country. Yes, that's still a hit, but it's the first of her solo singles to not go number one. I believe this is enough for her team to decide that her country fans will not stick with her if she goes pop. 
And here's why. Winona's second album makes a hard U-turn back into country music. Jill Colucci, the main writer of No One Else on Earth, doesn't have a song on this album. And nothing on this album really sounds like No One Else on Earth. The album is successful. The title track and first single, Tell Me Why, comes out in April of 1993 and does even better on pop and adult contemporary charts than no one else on earth had done. For some strange reason, it isn't a number one song for fans of country music. None of the singles on her second album are. Peaceful waters raging sea, it's all the same to me. I can close my eyes and still be free. When the waves come crashing down, the thunder rolls around, I feel my on solid ground All in love Sail straight From the harbor When you hit rock bottom You've got two ways to go As a matter of fact, Winona won't have another number one country single until 1996. And unless she has another one after this episode comes out, that's her final one. It's almost as if her loyal country fan base bought No One Else on Earth. Just as they'd bought everything she'd done before, realized they didn't think it was country music, and felt betrayed. It's almost as if her team crunched the numbers and decided hitting the bottom of the Hot 100 didn't make up for not hitting number one country. Didn't make up for alienating her core audience. Because singles sell mainstream country albums. 
I can't say for a fact that's what happened, but looking at it from the outside, well, I can't think of any other explanation that works for why the writer of her biggest hit wasn't brought back, why the sound of her biggest hit wasn't brought back, and why her status as a country chart topper was so suddenly revoked by country music fans. I'll point out again that these albums were successful, by any benchmark except the one she'd set for herself. Winona's debut album is currently certified five times platinum. Her second album is platinum. Five million sold versus one million sold is a gigantic difference. Her third album doesn't come out until three years after the second one and it's the last of her albums to go platinum. What I haven't told you is that it's a miracle Winona was able to keep it together enough to continue making music at all after the year 1994. A lot happened in the three-year gap between her second and third albums. Cast your memory all the way back to the beginning of this episode. Remember how Naomi Judd got pregnant by her boyfriend in high school, married him, and had his baby? Yeah, that's not what happened. When Naomi Judd and Michael Ciminella moved into their first apartment together, he learned a lot more about sex. The most important thing he learned about it was that he and Naomi hadn't done the part that makes babies before she got pregnant. Naomi misled him into raising a child that was not his. But Michael had asked Naomi to marry him on their very first date, and they're married now, right? So maybe he should just keep his mouth shut about it, which is what he does, and according to Ashley Judd, probably the reason Naomi comes to despise and demonize Michael. The reason I withheld this information from you until right here is that it isn't until right here in 1994 that Winona Judd, a 29-year-old woman, finds out that her father is not her father and has to react to that with the whole world watching. Ashley Judd had known this for years. She's the reason Winona is at long last told the truth in an emergency family therapy session with all three Judd women. Ashley, in effect, commanded Naomi to come clean. In the room, Naomi just cried and couldn't talk, so Ashley finally said it. Michael Ciminella is not your father. Turns out, Winona is practically the only person who doesn't already know. Naomi had told the Judd's managers and publicists, even their wardrobe assistant. The reason that it's now an emergency Winona be informed is Naomi's first autobiography came out a few months before this. In this book, she lets the reader believe Michael is Winona's father. She also talks a lot of trash on him, leading us to believe he's everything from an idiot to the definition of a bad, uncaring parent. So by this time, that manager Ken Stilts is out of the picture, following a problem with Naomi, which meant a problem with Winona, and that all ends up in civil court. Winona's new manager is her lawyer, a man named John Unger. Now, Naomi's book is published in December of 1993. The next month, January of 1994, Clint Black, Tanya Tucker, Travis Tritt, and Winona all perform at the halftime show of Super Bowl 28. 
At the time, Winona is the biggest star of the bunch, so she would have been saved for the end anyway. But then they bring Naomi out of retirement for Love Can Build a Bridge, with all the stars coming back to sing again. Plus a pre-fame Ashley Judd and Stevie Wonder, and oh who cares, might as well throw Elijah Wood on stage as well. It's on YouTube. Michael Ciminella comes to the game and asks if he can ride back to Nashville with Winona on her bus. Her lawyer slash new manager, John Unger, who knows Naomi's secret, invites himself on the bus as well, preventing the privacy Michael wants to tell his side of the story. The emergency family meeting is called soon after this. Then Winona learns she's pregnant. Can you imagine any of this? Can we even begin to empathize here? Maybe don't answer yet. It's not over. In May of 1994, she mentions her pregnancy to some reporters. I repeat, a female country singer announces her intention to have a child out of wedlock in 1994. If that isn't a big deal, someone forgets to tell the tabloids. Feeling as though her entire family had lied to her for her whole life, because they had, she retreats into a relationship with the father of her unborn child a man she refuses to name in her autobiography because of how awful he turned out to be. And all of these people are still alive and the situation seems not good, so I'll be leaving identity out of this one. After moving into Winona's house, this guy has a hand in every aspect of her life, doing just about all the things a personal assistant would do. Nearly every piece of communication with Winona goes through him. Soon she won't make a decision without his input. All of this, it's what she's used to, letting someone else run things. Only this time she's in a relationship with the person. About to have a baby with the person. When the kid is born, the father throws a fit, right there in the hospital room, demanding his last name go on the birth certificate. He grows more demanding. The romance leaks out of the relationship. They remain unmarried. The day of that emergency Judd family meeting, Winona had spoken to Michael Ciminella. He told her something like he hoped they could now start developing a relationship based on truth. I'm sure he meant that. I'm sure she wanted that. But the only reason Winona knows the truth is because of how terribly Michael is being judged in the court of public opinion. Naomi's out there doing interviews to promote her book, and everyone is like a slap in the face to Michael and what he knows is the truth. Finally, in 1995, he goes to the press. The same week the Judds are scheduled for a one-off 4th of July celebration in Naomi's hometown of Ashland, Kentucky. She and Winona make a deal beforehand that no matter what she's asked by the media, Naomi will not talk about Michael Ciminella. Naomi talks to the media about Michael Ciminella. Winona feels betrayed by her family yet again she returns home to her now nearly loveless relationship. A few months of that have her just about ready to kick this guy out when she finds out she's pregnant again. We're probably now somewhere around September of 1995. 
Winona hasn't put out an album since Tell Me Why, her second album in 1993. She hasn't toured for a year. These things are bad for her career. But she had planned to take a year off after the birth of her first child, so it is what it is. Now that year's up, and here comes baby number two. She can't take another year off, and she knows it. Even though things are super not great with this guy, they're about to have two kids together. Maybe she thinks it will be easier to balance her career and family if she has a husband. I don't know. She decides to marry him, get a third album out, and do as much touring as possible before the second baby is born. A few weeks before the wedding, this guy informs Winona's manager, John Unger, they've decided a prenuptial agreement will not be necessary. Fortunately, John Unger, remember, is a lawyer. He explains there will never be a wedding without a prenup. After the wedding, Mr. Winona tries to get her to sign over power of attorney to him. Again, thanks to John Unger, this does not happen. Winona doesn't even know what power of attorney means. After it's explained to her, she calls her husband to ask, what the fuck? He laughs it off and says all he wanted to do was sell one of the cars. Gradually, people who'd worked closely with Winona for years begin quitting their jobs. Tour dates fall through. Sponsorships are dropped. It seems wherever this guy gets involved, he has to throw his weight around and Winona's professional and personal relationships suffer. She stops talking to her own best friend when that friend gives an honest opinion on the situation. Finally, after losing more employees than she can ignore, she sends Mr. Winona home from the tour and things magically get better. Near the end of 1998, she files for divorce. It's not easy, but she manages to escape this marriage. If I ended this episode the way Winona ends her autobiography, it would look like this has a happy ending. I don't think I can do that. With Naomi's health improved, in the year 2000, the Judds do a reunion tour. They still drive each other crazy, but they're older, maybe wiser now, and they deal with their issues openly. Very openly. Extremely openly. They start dealing with their issues on national television with Oprah Winfrey. Winona falls in love with and marries her longtime bodyguard. Then she finds out she's going broke after years of overspending. The married couple enter an experimental form of therapy to work on their issues. It seems to work. As she wraps up her story, her life isn't perfect, but she's grateful. She knows there are problems, and she thinks she knows how to deal with them. There's a wonderful sense of optimism. I truly hope that optimism is still there. Her book was published in 2005. In 2007, her husband was arrested for sexually assaulting a minor. They divorced immediately. In 2012, Winona got married again, this time to Highway 101's drummer, Cactus Mosier. Two months after the wedding, he had a motorcycle accident and lost one of his legs. Fortunately, he's still able to play. Winona's most recent album came out in 2016. 
It's called Winona and the Big Noise. This is my story. This is my glory. This is what keeps me alive. This is me flying. This is me trying. This is what keeps me alive. Will I be dreaming, dreaming tomorrow? Will I be dreaming, dreaming? You can find out more about what Winona's up to now www.winona.com. Everyone who still reads the tabloids knows I've left out many things. I tried to include everything that seemed relevant to the story I wanted to tell. That story isn't over yet, so I don't know whether or not I failed. Nobody does. Thank you for listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones. Every episode of the podcast is written and produced by me, Tyler Mahan Co. Go to cocaineandrhinestones.com to find this episode's companion blog post. If you'd like to see a full list of what songs were used in this episode, watch the video clips I mentioned, buy any of the books I used as a source, or grab a good link to share the podcast with someone. Every episode, I ask listeners to share what they just heard with one person. You can do that online or by bringing it up in a conversation with anyone. Those of you who've listened to every episode may be thinking, listen man, I've told everyone I know. What more do you want from me? I'm definitely not asking you to camp out on your friend's front porch until they start listening to the podcast. I appreciate everyone who's told someone already, and if the people you told started listening to the show, then they're the ones hearing me say this, and now it's their turn to pass it on. It's also their turn to hit subscribe wherever they listen to this. That way, new episodes will show up as soon as they come out. If you're new to podcasts and don't have or want an app for listening to them, you can go to cocaineandrhinestones.com and hit the subscribe by email button. On a computer, it will be on the side of the page. On a phone, you may have to scroll all the way to the bottom to see it. Find that subscribe by email button, and you can have new episodes sent to your inbox as they come out. I'm pretty sure there's an audio player right in the email you get and you can listen without downloading anything or you can just use the email as a reminder that there's a new episode and go listen to it on the website. Next week on the podcast, I will be telling the story of Doug Kershaw and his little brother Rusty. I don't want to oversell it, but I am very excited to be in a position to tell this story. It's one that's very special to me for a lot of personal reasons. There is some out-of-this-world music in that episode, pretty hilarious drug stories, and it crosses over into the world of mainstream rock music in a really big way. So this is going to be one you can talk about with all your friends who think they hate country music and would never listen to this podcast. All right, liner notes. Every single time I press play on one of the songs in this episode was an intensely nostalgic experience for me. 
Like when you walk into someone's house for the first time and it smells exactly the way your grandmother's house used to smell 30 years ago. Something akin to that familiarity. It literally gave me goosebumps. No adult in my life was a particularly big fan of the Judds or owned their albums or anything like that. It's just that they were on the radio constantly. This is very much the music of my childhood. This episode is going to end up being one of the longest in the first season, which is pretty funny because originally this was just going to be a song episode like The Pill or Oki from Muskogee. That one segment where I detail the way no one else on earth was released and speculate on the strategy and consequences of it, that was the original focus of this episode. I wanted to really dig into an end of the century example of pop music on country radio and give whatever context may be necessary to understand it. It became clear pretty immediately that I didn't have the full context myself. I never have been a person to read tabloid journalism, and I stopped paying attention to almost everything in the 2000s. So I was not aware that this family has been a very public shit show for the past two decades. I had a general awareness of how many decisions were not being made by Winona for herself in the 90s, and I expected to talk about that, but when I got to the year 1994, I realized this isn't a story you can look at one little piece at a time. I'm not sure if this was ever a part of the tabloid narrative, it probably was, but a common conspiracy theory I've often heard in person is that Naomi Judd never really had a liver disease. Some people think the Judds just couldn't stand each other anymore. They think it was a publicity stunt ahead of the farewell tour, a good storyline to launch Winona's solo career. Look, I'm not gonna pretend I know the truth one way or the other on this. We've seen examples of Naomi being a dishonest person, so everything she says from now on will come under scrutiny. Personally, I don't see this being a lie. She wanted to be famous her entire adult life. Why would she give up the spotlight? Also, we've seen how terrible these people are at keeping secrets. Yeah, she managed to hide the truth about Winona's father all the way through getting a book published. But once the book came out with a lie in it, it was a little over a year before the truth was in headlines. Every time a Judd writes a book or goes on TV to tell their side of a story, another Judd writes a book or goes on TV to tell their side of a story. I mean, if we're gonna get silly about it, we may as well say the Judds have always been a perfect family, and every disagreement they ever had was to get people hooked on a real-life soap opera. Because they've certainly gotten more long-term publicity out of being a dysfunctional family than they ever got from the Hepatitis C announcement. I said white people blues and white people rock in this episode, so I'm sure someone's pissed about that. It was a description for the two audio clips used right before that, and if I may say so, a very accurate description. It was not my intention to insinuate that either of the Judds do not listen to black blues artists or black rock artists, because I have no idea whether or not that is the case. I should also clarify that slowing down Ray Parker Jr. or Whitney Houston will not literally sound like no one else on earth in any melodic or textural sense. It was just a way of thinking about the production on the song. Some people familiar with the full Hank Williams Sr. interview response I used in the beginning may think I was twisting those words to make the opposite of Hank's point. So let's get into that. First though, you have to understand 
The reason why he was saying any of this is because a reporter asked him to explain the global appeal of a genre of music made by a bunch of American hillbillies. So he's responding to a direct question about why people can relate to, and this is the important part to specify, a hillbilly singer. Quote, you ask what makes our kind of music successful. I'll tell you. It can be explained in just one word, sincerity. When a hillbilly sings a crazy song, he feels crazy. When he sings, I laid my mother away, he sees her laying right there in the coffin. He sings more sincere than most entertainers because the hillbilly was raised rougher than most entertainers. You gotta know a lot about hard work. You gotta have smelt a lot of mule manure before you can sing like a hillbilly. The people who has been raised something like the way the hillbilly has know what he is singing about and appreciates it. For what he is singing is the hopes and prayer and dreams and experiences of what some call the common people. I call them the best people because they are the ones that the world is made up most of. They're really the ones who make things tick, wherever they are in this country or in any country. They're the ones who understand what we're singing about. And that's why our kind of music is sweeping the world. There ain't nothing strange about our popularity these days. It's just that there are more people who are like us than there are the educated, cultured kind. There ain't nothing at all queer about them Europeans liking our kind of singing. It's liable to teach them more about what everyday Americans are really like than anything else. End quote. Okay, now I want to recognize that this is a quote you can take bits and pieces of to make it mean whatever you want. But I also think it should be pretty clear that Hank's general point is my general point. If you think he's saying you've gotta be country to sing country, the only thing he says here that could be taken to mean that is, you got to have smelt a lot of mule manure before you can sing like a hillbilly. That does not mean you have to be country to sing country. First of all, he said hillbilly. That's not a catch-all term for any person not from the city. Ernest Tubb was one of Hank Williams Sr.'s biggest influences and he was by no stretch of the imagination a hillbilly. Nor is anyone else from Texas, Oklahoma, or anywhere without mountains. Hank is from Alabama. He self-identifies as a hillbilly and a reporter just asked him why people in Europe like his hillbilly singing. So that's what he's talking about. Second, I honestly do not believe he was speaking in literal terms about a certain amount of mule shit you have to smell before you can sing country music, like there's some scientifically measurable critical mass, because that's ridiculous. It's a figure of speech. The vibe of his entire response is, we're the people of America who always end up eating the shit sandwich. So anyone around the world who's ever had to eat the shit sandwich knows what it tastes like and can relate. Also, if you think a farm is the only place that smells like shit, then I can tell you right now that you've never been to New York City in the summertime. Human shit smells just as bad. I said affluence is not a deal breaker. Hank does seem to imply that, quote, the common people are more likely than, quote, the educated, cultured kind to appreciate country music and presumably try to make it. Well, I'm pretty sure I agree with that. It seems to check out. What Hank doesn't say is nobody with money likes country music and nobody with money could ever make country music. That would be a pretty stupid thing for anyone trying to sell records to say, don't you think? If he were still around, we could ask him if he would grant that not all educated, cultured people are skating through life on old money. There are educated, cultured people who do know a lot about hard work, who were raised rougher than most. I think he would agree with that. 
And for what it's worth, I'm a high school dropout, but I would consider myself a pretty educated and cultured person. I read books, I eat sushi, what's up? Now, this entire topic of sincerity or what some people want to call authenticity is not something I'm going to talk about in an intro to one episode and never mention again. That goes for pretty much anyone or anything in any episode of the podcast. Just because I talk about something or someone once doesn't mean I'm done talking about that. I should maybe clarify that when I said that sort of thing did and still does happen in regards to failed singers from other genres trying to make it in country, throughout history, that would have been mostly white people doing that. I should also clarify that I was not specifically referring to the Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines thing when I said you could create an alter ego for yourself. That was a spectacular failure, and I would argue that it failed for some of the same reasons I got into in this episode. Even though I do believe that he was very sincere in what he was trying to do, most people at the time did not buy it. As we learned with Shelby Singleton, gimmicks, stories, and lies can sell records, but not when the audience can see behind the curtain or when they think they can. The public has to buy in, and the evolution of media, specifically the internet, has made this a very difficult thing to accomplish. All the background information is out there for anyone who cares to take five minutes to Google it. Record labels, artists, publicists, and even some journalists, the whole big machine, still seem to think country music fans have an authenticity test that their product must pass. They're still trying to sell the lies they think they need to pass it, but that gets harder to do every year. I did want to mention that Don Potter is not just a guitarist. If you listen to Chuck Mangione's full Friends and Love concert that I excerpted in this episode, then you'll hear Don Potter singing the song, She's Gone. He's made a couple solo albums and worked with several other bands over the years. The Judds are not his sole accomplishment. If you've seen the documentary Heartworn Highways, and I hope that you have, the segment where Larry John Wilson is in the recording studio making a Hopi River Bottomland, When it shows the guy sitting at the mixing console in the control room, turning knobs and adjusting sliders, that's a young Brent Mayer. And in addition to producing it, Brent Mayer actually wrote Lesson in Leaving with Randy Goodrum. Just out of curiosity, I checked whosampled.com to see if any hip-hop producers have ever used that stellar drum intro from Dottie West version. It does not appear so, which I think is a shame. Here's a little thing that's maybe interesting. Uh, Britney Spears sang Love Can Build a Bridge on Star Search when she was 10 years old. All right, all of my sources for this episode have the last name Judd. As I mentioned, every one of these ladies has published at least one book. Naomi Judd was first to the presses with her initial autobiography. Since I addressed it in the episode, I don't feel like I need to say very much about it here. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know there's a special category for certain country singer autobiographies. This book goes in that category. However, I do want to say that Naomi has undoubtedly been victimized in her life as a woman pursuing a career in country music. If there weren't so many people still ignorant to the reality of that, it would go without saying. I'm not sure we have any reason to count Michael Ciminella among the people who have wronged her. In 2016, Naomi published a second autobiography slash self-help kind of book about her experiences with depression. In this book, she does disclose the identity of Winona's father, but continues to downplay her role in deceiving Michael Ciminella. 
Winona's 2005 autobiography directly confronts her psychological issues. This is a woman telling us she has a lot of problems and owning up to it without much finger pointing. I would even go so far as to say that she makes a lot of attempts to normalize her mother's actions over the years, and while there are several people she has every right to blame, she instead opens her book with three full pages of thank yous. Ashley's 2011 autobiography is almost entirely focused on her humanitarian efforts with fighting disease and poverty in third world countries. She spends very little time on the very terrible things that happened to her, choosing instead to fight for the happiness of others. In reading all of these books, I don't get the impression that either Ashley or Winona feel the need to freely edit history as they see fit. Their stories mostly gel with each other. In any instance where Naomi's version of events differs from that of her daughters, I have chosen to believe her daughters and use their version of these stories. All right, next week's episode of the podcast, I already told you, it's really special for me. So I hope you'll be back to hear me tell the story of Doug and Rusty Kershaw. See you there. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine. I love the babies in the cradle in New Orleans. The doctor kept a whip until the baby got me. Doctor whip until the baby got so. Mama said you couldn't smell no more. Lord, go doctor, ring the bell, the women in the alley. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine.